My great-grandfather loved art. And he had an incredible eye for it. In fact, in 1948, at the encouragement of a friend who was an art expert, my great-grandfather, with the approval of the board of Bob Jones University, began collecting artwork and building a sacred art museum. Today, that art collection that he began in 1948 has grown into a gallery that is known around the world as one of the finest private collections of Western Baroque religious art. Along the way, my great-grandfather built a small personal collection as well. As he would be out and he was gathering things for the school and building this collection, he would see things that he liked, and so he'd get those himself out of his own finances. And now several of these beautiful paintings and sculptures adorn the walls and the halls of different family homes. But among all the beautiful paintings and the stunning sculptures, there's one piece that seems out of place. As you walk into my grandfather's house and you walk into his, his living room, there's beautiful pieces all around you, artwork on the walls. But on top of a large armoire, in my grandfather's living room, there is a white papier-mâché elephant with blue polka dots. The elephant is obviously not the work of a Baroque master, or really a master of any sort. It almost seems like a joke. It stands out. And in fact, it kind of is. See, my poor mother, who is not artistic at all, she doesn't have an artistic bone in her body, and I got that from her as well. <laughs> my poor mother had to take an art class in college in which there was a papier-mâché project. And my mother, even though she's not gifted in the arts, put everything that she had into this project. She labored hard on her little elephant with blue polka dots, and what she ended up with actually does somewhat look like an elephant. It's in the general form of an elephant. <laughs> but my grandmother treasured that little elephant. That my mom had put so much time into. And my grandmother always kept it, even though it wasn't beautiful. Even though it looked like a joke next to these beautiful paintings and these beautiful sculptures. She always kept it on top of that armoire in the living room. And there are paintings and sculptures of great worth and historical significance in my grandfather's house. And then there's this little white, papier-mâché elephant with blue polka dots. And my poor mother's blue polka dot papier-mâché elephant has no value to most people in the world, but to me, it is priceless. Because I know and love its creator. This morning we're taking a short break from our John series to consider the value of human life. It's already been mentioned that today is a sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's appropriate for us to pause and to consider what Scripture has to say about the sanctity of human life. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday was set up to be on the Sunday closest to that infamous court case, Roe v. Wade, when abortion was made legal. 
And as we gather this morning with the subject before us of the sanctity of human life, we are left to marvel at how little the world around us values life. In the same breath, this world will proclaim black lives matter, or all lives matter, or blue lives matter. And in the same breath, they will defend the right of a woman to end the life of her child in abortion. But we marvel at their hypocrisy and their blindness and we mourn for the evils of abortion. How can we expect any less? How can we expect a world that does not know the creator of life to value the life that he has created? I would submit to you this morning that the greatest threat to human life this morning is not just a world that doesn't know any better, but a church that knows better and stays silent. goal this morning is not to beat each other up, but to call us to action, to open our eyes of the great worth of human life and the need for the church to take action. See, human life matters to God, and therefore human life must matter to his church. The church must champion life. We must protect, promote, and proclaim the value of life and the Lord of life every opportunity that we have. And so this morning, we're going to ask three questions. What do we mean by the sanctity of human life? Why do we believe in the sanctity of human life? And what does the sanctity of human life mean for me? What does it mean for me? First thing we see is what do we mean by the sanctity of of human life. If you're not already there, I invite you to join me in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verses 26 to 31. What do we mean by the sanctity of human life? Before we can properly argue from Scripture that the sanctity of human life matters, we must first understand what we mean when we say the sanctity of human life. I feel like that could be one of those phrases that we often throw around and we talk, but we've never taken the time to sit down, to pause, and to define what do we mean when we say this. According to Merriam-Webster, the word sanctity means the quality or state of being holy or sacred. Sanctity carries the idea of uniqueness and therefore special. When we say that human life is sacred, when we say that human life is, is, is set apart as, as holy, we don't mean holy in the sense of sinless, right? We just talked about that Wednesday. Wednesday we were in Psalm 53. We saw that there is none who does good. No, not one. We don't mean that human life is sinless. We mean that human life is special. It is unique. Human life is is valuable. As a young boy, I got into collecting baseball cards. My dad had built a baseball collection, baseball card collection over the years as he was growing up. Him and his dad were into it. And so when I got old enough, my dad passed his collection on to me. And together we continued to build this collection. 
I used to love going to the, the store. We wouldn't go to just a, a Walmart or a Target and buy cards. There was this specific little baseball card shop. I don't know how it stayed open. They hardly ever had business. All they sold were cards, just this little thing. But the guy in there, he knew everything about baseball. And it was fascinating to go in there and to buy cards and to talk to him about this pack or that pack or this card or that card. It was one of the greatest things. I remember I'd save up my money until we got to the point where I could buy a few packs of cards and my dad would take me on a Saturday and we'd go and we'd buy a pack of cards. Our collection was not very impressive, but there was one card in particular that had a little bit of value. It was an error card. Somehow there had been a mistake, an error while they were printing these cards and, and some wrong information had been put into the machine and then a few cards were printed with the wrong information. And before they caught the error and fixed it, a few of these cards had been put into packs and sent off. Now you may be wondering, how can a card that has an error be the most valuable card that you had? That sounds like a card that's not a treasure but trash. If that's your most valuable card, it sounds like you were really bad at collecting cards. The reality is that error cards actually are fairly valuable because they're so rare. It is their uniqueness that gives them value, that sets them apart. They stand apart from all other baseball cards. Likewise, humanity stands apart from all of creation as unique, as special, as valuable. Our uniqueness is not by error, but by design. Human life has value because human life is special. And this value is not just some arbitrary value that we assign to ourselves. It is the value given to us by our Creator, God. Look with me, if you will, at these verses. Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, both male and female, he created them. Notice first the uniqueness of man's creation in the midst of the creation weak. Genesis 1 is one of those chapters in the Bible that most of us are pretty familiar with if you grew up in church. We know Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 goes on to, to explain how in six literal days, God created all that is. And the pinnacle of God's creation is man. In systematic theology, John MacArthur notes, Genesis 1 is structured to highlight the creation of man on day 6. Being created last highlights man's significance. If you've ever been to a sporting event, a lot of times at basketball games specifically, they'll announce the starters. And the best player is never the first player announced. As they announce the players, it is building the excitement. And then finally, the final player, the hope of the team, is announced. 
And the crowd erupts as he runs through that tunnel. Going last is not an indictment against him. It's a statement about him. So it is in the creation week. God's creation of man is a statement about man. As the last player to have his name announced at a sporting event is usually the best player. So here, even in significance of the creation week, God's creation of man stands out as special. Creation is building to the creation of man. Not only is it the placement of man's creation in this week that highlights his significance, but even the language that is used in man's creation is unique from the rest of creation. MacArthur goes on to note, for the first five days, in the beginning of day six, the phrase, let there be, or let there, is used to describe God's creative acts. Yet with the creation of man, a different phrase is used. Let us make man. This shift stresses man is unique within God's creation. Let us make man. Lest these hints, the placement in the creation week, the language that is used, let this, lest this is not enough to convince you of man's uniqueness, of man's value. Look with me specifically at these verses. Verse 26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us. The first hint at the Trinity our triune God, let us make man in our image. In fact, notice the pause. Verse 26 is almost a, a pause. God has been commanding all week. He's been commanding. He's been creating. But as we come to verse 26, there's a pause as God discusses among himself what he will do. Rather than simply speaking and creating, God dictates what he's about to do very specifically. God doesn't just make man. He makes man in his image. Man is created by the direct act of God in the image of God. Theologians often refer to this as the Imago Dei. And this fact is what above all else makes man unique. It sets us apart from all creation. In fact, notice, if you will, in verse 27, it is made clear that it's not just man, but it's man and woman who are created in the image of God. It is humanity, all of humanity, is created in the image of God. The next logical question, then, and the one that has been debated among theologians for centuries is, that's great, but what does it mean that man is created in the image of God? What does that mean? I see that that is unique. I see that nothing else in creation has that, but what does that mean? It's a topic that we could dive very deeply into. And for our purposes this morning, we're merely going to give a quick overview. There's clues for us, even right here in the context of the verse, in the very words, image and likeness. 
Gordon Wenham notes that in the ancient world, images of gods or kings were viewed as representatives of the god or king. If a king ruled a vast kingdom, there would be statues or images of that king in the cities that he ruled over. They stood as representatives of him. They reminded everyone who the king is, who rules here. Genesis 1.26 links being in the image of God with having dominion over creation. Look at what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And what is the very next phrase? Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man having dominion is uniquely tied to man being made in the image of God. And so it seems clear here that at least part of the Imago Dei is the fact that humanity is given responsibility and authority to rule the earth as God's representatives. We stand on earth as God's representatives. We're given authority to rule, to have dominion. Yet at the same time, there seems to be an indication that being in the image of God is not just about what man does, but very specifically, it's about man himself. Man has intellect, he has emotion, he has will and reason. He's the ability, ability for relationship with one another and with God. Uniquely. And all of these things set us apart from animals. So I think for this morning, it's best for us to understand being in the image of God is a combination of man's authority as a representative of God on earth and the characteristics that God has given to man to equip us to rule well. Man is created directly by God and man is given value and purpose by God. So what do we mean by the sanctity of human life? We mean that man is made in the image of God and therefore human life is sacred. The sanctity of human life means that human life has value. Regardless of age or race, strengths or weaknesses, all life matters. The value of human life is not tied to accomplishment or to beauty or to potential. The value of human life is tied to the simple fact that God created man in his image and set him apart as sacred. Now, lest you're tempted to get a big head as we discuss this topic, remember that you are created and not creator. Even in expressing the uniqueness and the value of human life in Genesis 1, the focus is on God who creates. Human life is sacred, but we have no value apart from the value given to us by God. So what we see here in Genesis 1 should not fill our heads with pride, 
should fill our hearts with worship. God has given us value. It is God who has done this. So what do we mean by the sanctity of human life? We mean that human life has value because God has created man in his image. Secondly, why do we believe in the sanctity of human life? In a sense, we just answered this as we looked at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We believe in the sanctity of human life because man was created in the image of God. But what does the rest of Scripture say about the sanctity of human life? Because the sanctity of human life, Scripture's teaching on it does not just end in Genesis 1. What does the rest of Scripture say? Turn with me, if you will, just a few pages over to Genesis 9. Genesis 9. Again, I love history. And I find it fascinating as we flip just a few pages from Genesis 1 to Genesis 9, we're not only moving a few chapters, we're skipping over approximately 1,700 years of history. We've moved now from the creation to the flood. Look with me, if you will, at the first several verses of Genesis 9. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That should be familiar language to us, having just read Genesis 1. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea that are given into your hand. Every every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your life I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. You'll notice in Genesis 9-1, the waters have subsided. And God blesses Noah and his sons and he reaffirms the creation mandate to be fruitful and and to multiply. However, as we come to verses 5 to 6, there is a new command that is given. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. For his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. Notice both the cost of taking human life and the reason for that cost. The cost of taking a human life, as we see here, is death. It is another human life. The life of the one who has taken that life. Here, capital punishment is introduced. But note the reason. And here we have our phrase again from Genesis 1. For God made man in his image. The reason for the high cost of taking a human life is because man is made in the image of God. Because man's life has value. In verses 3 to 4, God has told them, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Everything. 
You can kill an animal and you can eat it. It can be food for you, but you cannot kill a man. There is value tied to a man's life that is not tied to an animal's life. Neither animals nor man can take a man's life without repercussion because man is created in the image of God. So here in Genesis 9-6, we see the same truth that we saw in Genesis 1, that man is made in the image of God. Man has value. Human life has value. And that value comes from the God who created man in his image. As you move into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God gives the law, and God's law reaffirms the value of human life. In the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Exodus 21 and Numbers 35 build upon the principles of Genesis 9 and the law of Exodus 20, and they hand down a clear sentence of death for all who intentionally take human life. This death sentence is across the board. It is final. In fact, John MacArthur goes on to point out that such a strict penalty is unparalleled in ancient Near Eastern literature and legal codes. It is across the board. If you intentionally kill someone, your life will be taken because life matters. It has value because human life is, humans are created in the image of God. In fact, human life is so precious that even those who unintentionally take a life face consequences. Passages like Deuteronomy 19 and Numbers 35 make it clear that those who unintentionally take a human life are essentially banished to a city of refuge. This would be in our legal codes the difference between manslaughter and murder. If you accidentally take a life, one of the examples that is given is if you're out in the, the forest and you're swinging an axe and that axe slips out of your hand and it hits your brother and kills him. You're not off scot-free. Your life may not be taken, but it is uprooted. You have to leave immediately. You have to go to a city of refuge and you're able to live out your life in that city of refuge. You can live there until the high priest passes away, but you must stay there. There's a cost for taking human life, even unintentionally. There's many other passages all throughout the Bible that we could go to. We go to the Psalms. We could turn our attention even to, to Jonah 4, which we read this morning, where God expresses his love for people who he has created living in Nineveh. How unique is that passage? As God expresses his love, not for his people, Israel. He's expressing his love for a pagan people. A people who the world hates because they hate people, and yet God loves them. In fact, Jonah, God specifically mentions young children, those who cannot differentiate between their left and their right. Human life has value. All human life has value. Even the lives of Assyrians. But as we consider the sanctity of human life, and the passages and the laws that imply the value of human life, there's one specific passage that stands out as particularly important to this conversation. 
There's one instance where accidentally taking a human life does carry the penalty of death. It's found in Exodus 21. I invite you to turn over there with me. Exodus 21, specifically, verses 22 to 25. Exodus 21, 22 to 25. If men fight and hurt a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished according as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judge determined. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The setting here is two men who are fighting. In the midst of this fight that gets out of control, one of the men swings and unintentionally hits a pregnant woman. He didn't mean to. And yet there are consequences, regardless of intent. There's two options that are given. If the strike forces premature birth, but the child survives with no harm, then the man must pay a fine. But if the accidental strike causes harm or death to the child, then it requires death in return. Regardless of intention. This passage is significant for two reasons, because once again, it stresses the value of human life, even human life in the womb. It stresses the value of human life, and secondly, it stresses the value of human life in the womb. Notice that this unborn child is not considered less of a human. The penalty is not less because this child was not yet born. Actually, the penalty is higher. Penalty for killing a child in the womb is not less than the penalty for killing a child outside the womb because an unborn child is a child. It is a human life that has been taken and it is nothing less. Human life simply has value. The Bible does not value an unborn child less than a young man. And the Bible does not value a young man more than an old woman. Whether young or old, blind or seeing, weak or strong, fully functioning or somehow limited, black or white or somewhere in between, all human life has value. Because all man is made in the image of God. That's why we believe in the sanctity of human life. And finally, what does the truth of the sanctity of human life mean for me? We've defined the sanctity of human life. We've, we've seen what the Bible says about it. But what does that mean for Altoona Regular Baptist Church? What does that mean for you and for me? The Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is specifically meant to raise awareness against abortion. It's important for us to understand what the Bible says about human life 
Because it's important for us to grasp that abortion is a big deal because human life is a big deal. Abortion matters because human life has value. Abortion is an abomination that takes a human life. Abortion is murder. There's a particular day in government class, my junior year of high school that I will never forget. We were having discussion and somehow the abortion came up. I don't know if that was the topic for the day. But in the midst of this conversation, the teacher asked a question. As I mentioned, we were our junior year, so we were all starting to get to the age of voting. It was coming up, and, and we were discussing these things. And, and she asked a question along these lines. How many of you see abortion as a major issue that will affect how you will vote? And it's possible that someone raised their hand, but I don't remember it. In fact, I remember looking around that room and being surprised that not one single hand was up. And to my shame, neither was mine. I went to a Christian school. I didn't go to a public school. And not a single hand was up. No one in that class, including myself, at that time, saw abortion as a major issue that would affect how I would vote. We went on to discuss it. And the discussion centered around, basically, our thinking as juniors in high school was abortion is law. Because it's law, my vote can't change it. But there are things that my vote can change, and these things I see as more important. I say that to my shame today. I'm ashamed that I did not speak up, even when everyone else stayed silent. I'm ashamed of my apathy over such a travesty. Brothers and sisters, we cannot stay silent when millions of innocent human lives are taken. It doesn't matter what the government says because God has spoken. All life has value. And the church must stand for the truth. The church must stand for justice. The church must stand for life. God created man in his image and therefore human life has value. Human life matters to God. Human life must matter to us. So then the question, practically, what can we do? The reality is, it is law. So what can we do? First, we must pray. Now, as I mentioned that, don't roll your eyes. Don't think, well, he just has to say that because he's a pastor. Of course, prayer has to be at the top of the list. Now, let's get past this and let's get to what we can really do. This is what we can really do. We must pray. Really pray. Brothers and sisters, prayer works. Prayer matters. We have a king, Lord of the universe, to whom we pray, who listens. 
If we don't take our requests to him, do we even really care? He tells us to pray. And when was the last time that we sat down and we prayed not just a a political prayer, Lord, fix this issue in our government. When was the last time that we sat down and we prayed a personal prayer? That we prayed for ministries like Alpha Women's Center, for specific women who might be going through things, who are wrestling with decisions. We must labor in prayer over abortion. We must pray. But secondly, that prayer must motivate us to action. It's important to start with prayer, though. See, I found in my life that those who pray for something are often those who take action for that thing. It is those people who God gives a burden to as they pray, and God often affects change by them. So pray, but then give. Ministries like Alpha Women's Center, right here in Des Moines, a ministry that our church supports, the ministry that that money that we have given in those baby bottles in the back is going to. They're on the front lines fighting for human life, not politically, personally. We must support ministries like that. And so give. Give financially. You don't have to only support ministries like that through our church. You can do it personally. But don't just give financially. Give your time as the Lord allows as well. God has given you talents, gifts, abilities, things that you are excellent as. Use those to advocate for life. Volunteer. Fill needs. Simply be willing. I guarantee you, if you were to call a ministry like Alpha Women's Center this week and say, hey, I'm not a nurse, but I want to do something. What can I do? They'll find something for you. Even if it's not come in and work these hours, maybe it's bring us some diapers. You can do something. Pray, give, and finally speak the truth. People will never value life until they know the Lord of life. The fight against abortion is not merely a political fight because even if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned tomorrow, the issue would not be fixed. The issue is that people don't value life. Abortion is first and foremost a gospel issue. As I mentioned earlier, we cannot expect those who don't know the Creator to value the life that He has created. We must speak the truth. We must speak the truth about the horrors of abortion, about the value of life, and the glory of the God who created life. The greatest threat to human life today is not just a world that does not know any better, but the church that stays silent. Mm -hmm. 
The church must speak the truth or the world will never hear the truth. If we don't tell them, who will? It is your responsibility and it is my responsibility. Human life matters. And the sanctity of human life addresses more than just abortion. Life is sacred, and that must affect how we treat one another, how we treat the unborn, how we treat the elderly, how we treat those who are not like us, the handicapped, the maimed, the deformed. All human life is made in the image of God, and therefore all human life has value. And the question this morning, as we close the service, is not what can the government do? The question is what can I do? What can I do? It does us no good to sit here this morning and to throw stones at a government that has failed. A pagan government. It does us no good. We have to look at ourselves. What can we do? It starts right here. They're not our saviors. They probably don't even know any better, but we do. We must take action. We must speak. We must pray. What can you do?